Philippians chapter 1, we're going to go over three whole verses this morning. It's going to be awesome. We're going to be in verses 27 through 30, Philippians 1. We're in a series called Citizen, and it hopefully serves to help us focus on our heavenly citizenship as we have tremendous amount of conversation about our earthly citizenship in this election year. The English teacher in me wants to begin with a guy named Victor Hugo. Victor Hugo wrote a French novel, you may have heard of it, Les Miserables, or known as The Miserables. It's considered one of the greatest literary works of the 19th century. It's been made into a play, a movie, and a musical by Hollywood and any number of high school drama teams. The famous story follows the lives of several unique characters, including a fugitive, a single mom, an orphaned little girl, and a police officer. And his, in his own words about his own story, Victor Hugo said this, that it's a story essentially about the progress from evil to good, from injustice to justice, from falsehood to truth, from night to day, from appetite to conscience, from corruption to life, from bestiality to duty, from hell to heaven, from nothingness to God. In my own words, it's a story about grace. The main character, Jean Valjean, was sent to prison as a young man for stealing bread for his sister's children during a great economic depression. And during his five-year sentence for hard labor, he tried to escape four different times. And so his sentence was extended considerably. So after 19 years, he was released, penniless and homeless. And he couldn't imagine leading a life any other way than through crime. And so when a local bishop shows kindness toward him by giving him dinner and a room for the night. Valjean is overwhelmed, but he's still unable to resist temptation. And so during the night, he steals the bishop's silver dinnerware, and he flees. The next day, he is arrested and brought back to the bishop, and shockingly, the bishop rebukes Valjean, not for stealing, but for neglecting to take the silver candlesticks that he had given to him. And so away from the policeman's ear, the bishop tells Valjean never to forget that he has promised to become a new man with this silver. He tells him that he has bought Valjean's soul with it and that he has ransomed him from fear and hatred and taken him from evil and given him back to God. It's a very powerful scene, whether it's in the play, the movie, the musical. Now, the bishop had every legal right to have Valjean imprisoned again, but when the bishop went against every human instinct for revenge, grace transformed Valjean's life forever. Grace changed him, and from that day on, he dedicated his life to helping others. Interestingly, the bishop never told Valjean to be good. Instead, he told him who he was. He was a new man. He had been ransomed. And who he was dictated what he did. That, my friends, is the gospel. Now, in his letters, first letter to the Corinthians, Paul reflected on his first meeting with Jesus, a resurrected Jesus, and the meaning of grace in his life. And he said this in 1 Corinthians 15, that last of all, as to one untimely born, 
he appeared to me. He said, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, he says, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. God's grace wasn't wasted on Paul. He became a totally different person from a murderer of Christians to a martyr for Christ. Now, a deep belief in the grace of God is what empowers Paul throughout his life to endure unjust suffering, to live for Jesus, and to view even death as gain. And his, as his letter to the Philippians continues, we see Paul begins to shift his focus from talking about his circumstances and his persecution and his situation to the Philippians who are also suffering in a similar way. And he hopes, he says in his letter, to visit the Philippians again. It's unclear whether he ever does that. He wants to do so for the progress of their faith and for the joy in their faith. But he says until he can... He expects the Philippians to conduct themselves in accordance with the grace they have already received. Now, he's doing more than just commanding the Philippians to be good, which I pray is more than any sermon we ever preach in this building does. He is calling them to what he's going to call a worthy walk, where their outward actions match the inward convictions of their heart. Take a look at verse 27, just the first part, and he declares a very simple phrase that we'll spend some time on. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. We need to read that carefully. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul does not write, Become worthy of the gospel. He's not suggesting that the Philippians work harder to achieve something. Rather, they are to live up to something they have already received through faith in Christ. Essentially, it's an encouragement to live in a manner consistent with their true identity. To conduct themselves, to behave in such a way to reveal, to prove who they are. Now, interestingly, the phrase manner or conduct of life, depending on the translation you have, can also be read citizens worthy or be a faithful citizen. So as citizens of a heavenly kingdom, Christians are expected to demonstrate heavenly citizenship. Makes sense. As a high school teacher, one of the primary objectives was to teach or to educate or to raise citizens. Well, if you're a heavenly citizen, there's a kind of citizenship that is naturally expected to flow from that identity. And with the benefits, if you will, of citizenship, with the privileges of citizenship, come certain obligations. You see, in recent months, as you have probably done as I have done, 
listen to lots of noise about citizenship and rights. It's almost impossible to avoid. But in all of the discussion about rights of our earthly citizenship, I find it interesting that we have very little mention of responsibilities. But I believe failure to understand the obligations of our citizenship, the duties of our citizenship, the right responses of our citizenship is actually a failure to understand the nature and privileges of that citizenship. That's where it starts. In terms of our heavenly citizenship, it seems as if Christians are often eager to talk about the benefits of grace, which we should talk about but then very reluctant to talk about the obligations of that grace. I think it's unwise to separate our rights and responsibilities as Christians. The Apostle Peter seemed to connect both of them in his second epistle, reminding you this is the guy that denied Jesus. He wrote that God had, and I'm going to summarize, this is the first chapter, I think verses 3 through 9. But he had wrote that God had granted us all things that pertains to life and godliness. He granted us all things. He further said, God has granted us precious and great promises. And then he says, for this reason. So what is the foundation for what he's going to say? All that God has given us, all that he has granted us, all that he has freely blessed us with. And he says, for this reason, because we have been so blessed and so privileged and so graced, we should make every effort to supplement our faith with virtue. We should be godly people, knowing who we are. Peter invites us to pursue a certain kind of character and conduct based on what we've received, a response, if you will. And then he writes something at the end of that passage that is fascinating. He says this, whoever lacks these qualities, this kind of character, this kind of conduct, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind. And further says, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Kind of sounds like Valjean, right? Have you forgotten what happened? Have you forgotten the grace that was shown to you? Have you forgotten that you were ransomed from fear and hatred and evil and given to God? Have you forgotten who you are? In other words... Yes, we are called to be good, if you will. And if you fail to do that, it's only because you've forgotten who you are in Christ. It's not about becoming worthy. It's about believing and displaying your worth. Now, a life worthy of the gospel a life bought by the expensive blood of Jesus Christ exists in what one writer called an inescapable state of obligation to Jesus. 
In other words, to live a life worthy of the gospel is to conduct your life in such a way to uphold and to display or really otherwise preach the gospel with your life, a living sermon, if you will. It's a Jesus-motivated effort in a life that is modeled after Jesus for the glory of Jesus. So you ask yourself, okay, so what characterizes that life? Out of all the things that a Christian can do, what is the primary way, the most important way, the first way that a Christian should live a worthy life? Well, interestingly, Paul surprises us with what he says. The second half of verse 27 says, Walk so that whether I come and see you or an absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That was unexpected. And by that I mean this. The first thing that Paul writes about is unity with the people of God. With his church. And this isn't the only place he says this. In his letter to the Ephesians in the fourth chapter from another prison, Paul writes something similar. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. A lot of ones in that. So if you just take that Ephesians passage really quickly, again, he uses this idea of worthy walk, worthy of the calling. He describes a worthy walk or the calling to which you have been called in relational terms. To be gentle. And I certainly hope you're gentle with yourself. But I'm pretty sure that requires another person. To be patient. To bear with one another in love. These are the words he first uses to describe what it means to fulfill the calling in which you've been called. A Christian begins to walk worthy when they are, as he says, eager to maintain a oneness with the people of God in the church. Now, why is that such a shocking thing? Well, let's be honest. In our current cultural climate, there are fewer and fewer people who view their identity in Christ as connected with the local church. Some have argued that COVID-19 has accelerated an exodus that began many years ago. And maybe that's true. It seems that relationship with the church that Jesus came to build, the church that Jesus loves, the church that Jesus bled and died for, the church through which God chose to display his manifold wisdom, those are all verses in the Bible, 
It seems the church has become an unworthy part of what many would consider a worthy walk with Christ. And that doesn't seem to make sense. See, despite the fact that Jesus said, Jesus' own words, that by this all people will know you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Despite the fact that Jesus prayed for his disciples in John 17, I pray that they will become perfectly one. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me. Despite these words, it seems like the personal faith of many has become increasingly private. A public witness of our faith, our togetherness, Paul argues, is actually a sign of the legitimacy of our heavenly citizenship. The Apostle John, in one of his epistles, wrote something that's not very popular in our culture to say. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoa. This is how I know. I know I have passed out of death into life because why? I love the brothers, the church. So Paul, in writing to a people who take likely great pride in their Roman citizenship, his greatest hope for this church is that they will manifest their heavenly citizenship through their unity together. More than anything, regardless of what happens, he hopes to hear that they are in one spirit of one mind, striving together in one action. So what do those things mean? I'm glad you asked. One spirit, I believe, speaks about their gospel identity. They are bound together. We are bound together here at Restoration Road Church, not because we have the same abilities, the same affinities, the same personalities, the same ethnicity, or really anything definitively earthly. As the word says, we are neither Jew nor Greek, nor free, nor slave, nor male, nor female. We are one in Christ. See, in being neither Jews or Greeks, we are as citizens like a third race, so to speak. We are not only expected to delight in our citizenship, we are actually called to delight in our fellow citizens. Not because they share the same stories or the same interests, but because they are saved by the same grace and the same sin. We are one in spirit because the same spirit dwells in our hearts that cries out, Abba, Father, Daddy. That is the same spirit in our hearts that cries out to one another, brother and sister. We are family, whether we want to be or not. Adopted into the family, in a family that's weird, family that's quirky, a family that is also beautiful and broken, but a family. I remember having a conversation with some good friends who have been in our church for a long time, and we had to make a difficult decision that really impacted them personally. And they were upset, and understandably so, because it was a hard decision. There was no way to make it any less hard. 
But in the midst of the conversation that I was processing it, I was so encouraged because there was a statement made, and it was this. But we're not going anywhere. And it was this deep connection that though we were wrestling through something difficult, something we never would have chosen but we had to face, there was a commitment there. Well, we're family. So this might be hard. I might not lock you right now. You might not lock me, but we're family. And that's beautiful and good. Because what bound us together was not that circumstance, was not something that could really be taken away. It was something that was spiritual. We were bound together by the Spirit of God. But then we have this idea of one mind. One mind, I think, speaks to a shared conviction, and that can be easily misunderstood, especially as this election approaches. So the last couple of weeks, as many of you have probably seen, well-respected Christian pastors and theologians and leaders have offered very different opinions of how we ought vote. And they've been helpful, kind of. And what I've watched, though, in response is that different brothers and sisters in Christ have chosen their teams. Oh, I agree with this guy. Oh, I agree with this guy. Meanwhile, I get emails saying, I don't understand how someone could agree with this guy. I don't know if I can go to church with someone who agrees with that guy. It seems hard that we could, if it just means on the surface, be of one mind right now. If that means we have to agree on everything. That seems almost impossible. Undoubtedly, there are things that we would likely and should agree are essential to agree on. That if we disagree over certain things, we probably should divide. But being of one mind doesn't mean we think the same things about everything, especially the things that are not essential. But do we agree on the important things? What the biblical absolutes are, and then what the wisdom alternatives are. One of those absolutes is actually this, that there exist what the Bible calls disputable matters that we can disagree about and still delight in one another, hard as that might be to believe. Regardless, I think you would agree things feel somewhat divided right now. We can't even seem to agree about what we're allowed to disagree about. How can we be one mind? Personally, as an aside, I wish that those with great influence were a bit slower to make statements like all faithful Christians should do this or that. I think Paul would say there are a lot of things Christians must do to walk worthy, and I'm certain none of them would be who you should vote for. It is possible that and expected that the Christian can be one mind with the church and yet esteem different things differently in their own mind. It is possible. As citizens of heaven, we are expected, if you will, to see truth differently than the world. 
but we're also expected to see one another differently. There are certain things that, yes, Christians should and must believe doctrinally, but there are certain things that actually citizens should practice relationally. Like, all Christians should love one another. We should forgive one another. We should bear with one another. We should be gentle with one another. We should be patient with one another. We should assume the best about one another. All the while expecting and understanding that we are different than one another. But see, the church of Christ, the body of Christ, the household of God, the local church is supposed to offer a compelling community unlike any other. And even though I brought into question godly, well-respected men doing their part to give us guidance as to how to vote, I will as an aside say this. Most, if not at least many, of those godly men did give us a beautiful picture of how it or what it means to be unified and yet disagree in godly and loving ways. And it's a model that we could actually employ better as a church. Being of one mind. And then Paul says to be side by side for the faith, which I believe speaks to one shared action, right? There's a volitional aspect to our gospel response. It's not just emotional and spiritual, if you will. It's not even just intellectual. If we ascribe worth to the gospel message in our hearts and minds, then we need to give priority to the gospel work in our lives. Priority to it. See, the church that truly experiences a unity of striving side by side for the faith is a church without spectators, without passengers, and without consumers. I'll say it once and I'll probably say it many times. Ministry is for the professing, not for the professionals. If you are a professed Christian, you are a minister of the gospel. And while we may have different roles, you are no less of a minister than I am. We are a saved people, yes, but we are a sent people, not just sent pastors. This is not merely a building. It is supposed to function as an embassy. We are not sent alone. We are sent together as ambassadors in the name of our king. And we should rejoice that our individual passions send us from this embassy into different parts of this community to reach different people differently. We're not designed to be uniform in every way. That would actually make us quite weak. We're designed to be unified. I find it striking how many people are searching, going from church to church to find people who agree with them in every aspect and in every way. I'm not sure I want to hang out with the people who are just like me. That sounds somewhat horrible. There's a beauty in the diversity as long as we have one mind agreement on the essentials. 
There's a goodness in that. A body that's just feet, that's ugly, weird, and, and not functional. And that's why that metaphor is so important. Hundreds of different people with different opinions, laboring, wrestling, and acting together in one direction, that's not easy. But if everyone maybe considers others more important than themselves, it's possible. That's next week's sermon. So what does it mean to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel? First and foremost, I think it means just, and this is as plain as it sounds, it means loving our brothers and sisters in Christ in the local church. That's what it means. It means sharing our love, sharing our lives, sharing our mission and purpose with a visible local expression of God's invisible global church. And all true intimacy with a few friends, even within that context, is going to provide an important and necessary connection. Like you're going to be more intimate with some and not others. That's very natural. That's not bad. But your love for the many strangers those people that aren't your best friends, if you will, within this community. Like one provides necessary connection, that intimacy. The other, I believe, necessarily proclaims salvation. As one theologian said, conduct worthy of the gospel is actually conduct that promotes the gospel. And there's nothing more promoting of the gospel than saying Jews, Gentiles, males, Females, slaves, free, we are all one in Christ. You are a stranger, now you're family. Even though you're a little strange and so am I. But this kind of life, right, that I'm talking about is not without cost. And Paul tells us this. He had wrote in the last letter he ever wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ is going to be persecuted. There is tremendous opposition, even if it's just passive-aggressive antagonism, to the gospel-centered life where someone loves the Lord, loves the Word, and loves the church. That last one might be the worst one to declare publicly. See, we can't forget that Jesus' life, we have this twisted view of Jesus, that he was perfectly attracted. He got crucified. Do we realize that? He was attractive in so many ways, but also repulsive in so many ways. Because his inherent goodness revealed the badness of the world he was living in. And so there's going to be opposition if you are aligning yourself with Christ. And even if you live a perfectly sinless, which you won't, sinless life, you don't screw up anything, you still may be crucified. So Paul writes in these last verses about this persecution they're experiencing. He says, this persecution is a clear sign to the opponents of their destruction, but of your salvation and that 
from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. The worthy walk of the heavenly citizen is unworthy in the eyes of the world's citizens. Christians are called to stand for Christ, to set their minds above, especially when so-called believers go after things below. See, the opposition may like to talk about Jesus. In the Pacific Northwest, people don't mind talking about Jesus. But they don't delight in the church. They disdain it. Talk to enough people, you say that you'll see that they might like Jesus, but they don't value the church. They reject it. They don't prioritize the church. They often demonize it. According to the Apostle John, this isn't new, right? And this is, those who are demonizing and devaluing are often people who've been a part of it. But as the Apostle John said in the first century, They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been, they would have continued with us. So neither the exit of believers deconverting from their horrible experience with the church, nor persecution from opponents is to be feared, Paul says. On the contrary, and not in any kind of prideful way, it is to be celebrated as a sign of your salvation. Which is no different than what Jesus said. He said, blessed are you when others revile you. And they persecute you. And utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. So it's not true things they're saying. On the account of Christ. He said, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Paul tells us that both salvation and suffering had been granted by God, which is a whole sermon on its own. And in this context, suffering for Christ is not an individual experience. It's something he's writing to a church. It's it's something the church experiences together as they stand together. And this is not just any kind of like general suffering. It's the kind of suffering that comes from being and identifying as a Christian. Our shared persecution for the gospel is a gift. And it glorifies God and it promises heavenly reward, not much earthly reward. But there is no more powerful witness. There's no more powerful witness. I would argue that staying faithful together, standing firm Together, sticking by the people of God and the things of Christ when others do not. That's the best thing you can do for yourself and for those that you love. Staying together. Standing together. But it doesn't come without cost. If a Christian proclaims the truth, especially when others compromise, they're going to suffer. If a Christian condemns the lies of the world when others embrace them, they're going to suffer. 
If the Christian forbears with their brothers and sisters when others judge them, they're going to suffer. When a Christian stands up and says, I love the church and all its brokenness and weakness because of its beauty, you're going to suffer. But take heart, as Paul said, this is a sure sign of your place in the kingdom of God and a sure sign of destruction of every other kingdom. Our standing firm and staying together is the best thing we can do for a world that hates the truth of God. Paul tells the Galatian church something very important, and we'll close with this. As they're facing all kinds of opposition, they're tempted to give up. And he says, do not grow weary of doing good. He says, for in due season, you're going to reap if you don't give up. There's a reason why this wasn't written to the pastor of the Galatian church. It was read publicly to the church. We can't do it alone. The Bible's very clear. Those who isolate themselves, attempt to do their faith alone without the church, break out against all reason and hurt themselves and those they love. But those who stand in Christ and stay together for Christ remain steadfast because here's the basic truth. Being a steadfast person does not require a steadfast president. It doesn't require a steadfast policy or even, dare I say, a steadfast preacher. Being a steadfast person requires unity with a steadfast people my prayer is that's what we will be as a church that we are known for our love for God that people will see man look how different those people are from one another and yet they love one another that's my prayer let's pray together Heavenly Father, we praise you for your goodness to us. We thank you for our salvation. We thank you for our individual salvation, that you have taken our individual hearts of stone and given us hearts of flesh to beat after you, Lord, and the things that you love. But you have not adopted us to be only children. You have adopted us into a family and by virtue of changing your relationship with us, you have changed our relationship with one another. Our prayer, Lord, is that we will see each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. That we will see ourselves as being one in spirit and even one in mind. Though we disagree about disputable matters, Lord, let us find agreement on the essentials and charity and everything else. And Lord, help us because it is only by your power that we can strive side by side for the gospel. And unless we strive side by side, the gospel will not be effective. So help us to be good witnesses for you.